Welcome to ADHD is Over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is Over. Okay, welcome back. My guest today is Dr. Thomas Armstrong, the Executive Director of the American Institute for Learning and Human Development, and an award-winning author and speaker who has been an educator for over 45 years. Over 1.3 million copies of his books are in print in English on issues related to learning and human development. Dr. Armstrong is the author of 19 books, including If Einstein Ran to Schools, Revitalizing U.S. Education, The Myth of the ADHD Child, The Power of Neurodiversity, and ADD, ADHD Alternatives in the Classroom, just to name a few of the most relevant to our discussion today. Welcome, Dr. Armstrong. Thank you, Roman. It's nice to be on. It's always good to talk to you. You just have such a wealth of experience and knowledge in the subject, and I'm really excited to dive right in. Uh, first of all, I have a question. Is like, how do you make time to write 19 books. I mean, that's an insane body of work. I mean, you must have some, uh, a good work ethic or a, a good strategy on how to get creative. I think my strategy is really a pathology. It's really a obsession. <laughs> and I've had an obsession. Once I get an idea for a book, that kind of sets everything in place. And then I just work toward that deadline in my mind. Um, I don't think that 19 books frankly, is uh, all that many books in terms of all the time that I could have been spending writing other books. But I guess that's the way it always is. Somebody, you know, says that uh, they didn't do as much as they would have liked to have done. Right. And, uh, anyway, so that's uh, great. I, I like to write. Absolutely. And I see you've written a lot on uh, not just ADD and ADHD, but also on education and uh, what we now call neurodiversity or different learning styles, perhaps. Right. Well, neurodiversity um, is a little bit different than learning styles, but we can go into that as we go along. Exactly. Yeah. I would love for you as the expert to kind of make that distinction and uh, maybe we'll kick it off with uh, the question. What is ADHD to you? Well, ADHD to me has always been a doubtful concept. And the problem is it's anchored in outward symptoms. Well, outward and inward in a sense. Um, those three major symptoms of hyperactivity, distractibility, and impulsivity are what really define. I mean, that's the, that's the bottom line when it comes to ADHD. There's been thousands or tens of thousands of papers written about ADHD. But ever since I first read about it, I was in the uh, UC Berkeley Education Library and I uh, was doing research for another book and I got out a journal and it said, introducing a new disorder called ADD. And I thought, this isn't gonna be good. I had just been spending a lot of time focusing on learning disabilities. And I didn't think learning disabilities was the best concept to use either. Um, these are limiting concepts. Um, they tell what the child can't do. Attention is, uh, the attention of the child is deficit. It's, uh, it's disordered, it's hyperactive. So there's something wrong and we have to change it. And to me, this is a real problem because attention is a very 
complex and global kind of entity. Attention can wander when we're bored. So why don't we call it maybe a bored syndrome, you know, uh, <laughs> school boredom syndrome, S-B-S, S-B-S. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah, school boredom syndrome. Um, the important thing is that the ADHD model claims to be without a, based on a scientific model, claims to be based on this neutral scientific model that will apply regardless of where the child happens to be. But this is really not borne out by the evidence because children will be more ADHD when they're bored, uh, when they're being taught in the classroom through lectures and worksheets and uh, standardized tests than when they're involved in active experiential learning. They're, more, they're less likely to be ADHD when they're out in nature, which I think is an interesting point. Uh, there's less likely to be ADHD when they get to control the pace of their own learning, even sitting at a computer station. If they are in control, uh, their ADHD goes down. Their ADHD, go, this is a little uh, paradoxical, but their ADHD goes down when they fidget. That's mm -hmm. like saying they're less distractible when they are or hyperactive when they're hyperactive. In other words, <laughs> if you... If you let them be who they are, and many of them do tend to fidget more than average, you know, prefer to learn by wandering around, prefer to learn by building things with their hands, prefer to learn by, um, you know, engaging in drama and role play and, you know, all kinds of improvisational sort of things. The things that don't happen very often in the traditional classroom. Uh, when the child does those things, when their body's in motion, everything is fine. Um, culture is an issue, too. I just got a, um, a comment on one of my uh, blog posts from someone from Italy. And he said, you know, in Italy, in the classroom, the teacher is most concerned when the child doesn't ask any questions or when they're silent. And I thought how that differs from the United States where the children who worry the teachers are the ones who talk too much, mm -hmm. who are always blurting in, you know? Yeah. And this guy said he was always, um, you know, hyperactive and inattentive, but it wasn't a problem. It wasn't considered a problem either in school or in his family. And so, you know, that really helped him in his life. So he didn't form a, concept of himself as a disordered learner mm. and i think that if you know that's the issue of context again if you are in a context like the united states we live in a fast society a, a you know short attention span society um, which we're spreading around the world by the way um, consequently when people say when scientists say adhd is all over the world I would say that's because you've spread it all over the world. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a it's a pandemic of its own kind, and yet the cultural mores of different cultures will suggest that ADHD will be more or less a problem depending upon the values of that culture. And if the culture values um, holding in one's impulses, which is certainly true of the Puritan ethic in American uh, history then you're going to see that as a problem if the child has difficulty inhibiting their impulses. And yeah. it just goes on from there. 
So ADHD is in a lot of ways problematic. Um, and yet at the same time, it's rather perplexing to see how firmly entrenched it has become in the last 30 years or so. Um, I wrote the first version of my book, The Myth of the ADD Child, uh, back in the mid 90s. And back then, ADHD was, you know, it had established some, uh, you know, uh, validity among many people, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a fact of nature like gravity. And now it seems to be like gravity. You know, if you say ADHD doesn't exist, it'd be like saying, well, you know, gravity doesn't exist. If you hold a, you know, ball out, you know, there's no telling whether it's going to go up or down. <laughs> People yeah. are going to look at you. Even though David Hume, the Scottish philosopher, used that as a point to say that we couldn't predict whether the ball would go up and down. <laughs> and so he, he threw a wrench into modern philosophy, which Immanuel Kant had to rescue it from. But that's, that's a, sort of a digression, if I can be a little distractible for a minute. Yeah, no, absolutely. But, I, I, you know, go ahead, sorry. What were you saying? Uh, I was just going to say the, the same thing that recently, you know, because of our title ADHD is over, uh, the, the very mild and early backlash we're getting is like, don't you tell me my struggle isn't real. Yeah. And we say, nope, that's not what we're saying. We're not saying right. your struggle isn't real, but the label, the made up uh, uh, disorder, you know, it's made up. Yes. Yes. Um, and it's the question is we can all see the behaviors. We can see the, you know, the fidgeting, the distractibility, the gotta walk, wander around, the the blurting out, and 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 even the lack of organization and the kinds of things, executive functioning problems that are associated with ADHD. The question is, why are they there? Mm -hmm. Even even if I can go back to gravity for a minute, even the idea of of letting go of a ball went through several different explanations over the course of the millennia. Uh, Aristotle used to say the ball goes down because it wants to go down, to be at its, you know, along with its pals at the lower order of the chain of being. And then Newton came along a couple thousand years later and said it's because there's a force called gravity. And then Einstein came along and said, no, it's because uh, we live in a time-space uh, continuum and matter disturbs the fabric of that continuum and that disturbance is what we perceive as gravity. So everybody can see that the ball falls, but there've been vastly different reasons why it falls. Same thing with ADHD. ADHD can be explained in a, so many different ways um, that don't rely on you know, the current ruling paradigm. You know, I've, I've already mentioned sort of the educational dimension Mm -hmm. But there's a developmental perspective as well. Uh, kids are, um, who are labeled ADHD are more likely to be labeled if they're the youngest in their class, which is really interesting because other research suggests that the brains of kids labeled ADHD undergo normal development, nothing wrong with their brains, except that they mature two or three later, years later than the neurotypical student. So we've got kids who are a little bit younger than their age. They manifest more silliness, you know, and uh, what we would call immature behaviors. But 
Um, in fact, these are what I'd call neotenous behaviors. Neoteny is the holding of youth into adulthood. And it's considered a positive evolutionary movement. So if we have neotenous kids, we want them to stay in touch with their imagination. Kids with ADHD often are very imaginative. They're very playful. Um, they're often very creative. Um, and so why are we considering those things to be disorders? Why don't we take a more, at least take a more neutral perspective or a more neutral label that, uh, um, that allows for the possibility of pos positives and negatives, strengths and challenges? Well, this might be a rhetorical question, but why do we do that? Why does the establishment consider those uh, traits or skills uh, negative? Well, unfortunately, the ADHD model has been gobbled up by the medical establishment. It didn't start out that way. Uh, it started out with uh, Virginia Douglas in about 1972, who was a psychologist, giving an address at the Canadian, the Canadian Association of, Psycho of Psychology. And she said, we have this concept of uh, uh, attention as a side uh, issue with respect to learning difficulties, but she said, I think attention in and of itself should be considered a problematic disorder. And so it started in psychology, then it went into psychiatry. And as soon as it went into the medical model, then it became fixed, you know, and medical models are not based on strengths. You don't go to the doctor because you just discovered something wonderful about yourself. Right. You, you, you go to the doctor because there's something wrong. And so, yeah, there's a disease, there's a disorder, there's a dysfunction. And that's what doctors are trained to, to detect. And so that's why I think it's not a um, trying to be negative or anything like that. It's just the way that the medical model is set up as a, you know, deficit-based, uh, disease-based um, mm -hmm. uh, field of inquiry. So that's, that's, I think, why it's negative. But it also, it also reaches into something in our culture um, that I would call the loser mentality. We're kind of, you know, focused on this idea. And I think maybe our now soon-to-be-gone president may have had something to do with this, where, you know, being a loser is not acceptable. And so we, you know, classify people into winners and losers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can't say that ADHD kids are losers uh, exactly, but there's this pessimism surrounding them that is almost in the same way uh, as we consider the so-called loser. And we need to change that around there's a new field in psychology called positive psychology. It's about 20 years old, maybe 25. And it suggests that psychology has been focusing on the negative for too long. And they need to start looking at positive states of happiness and courage and uh, imagination and joy of learning and things like that. And so now, fortunately in psychology at least, a lot of research is being done in the in the areas of these uh, these attributes, these strengths, I haven't seen a lot of research applied in this area to ADHD. There's a wonderful paper about developmental disorders and looking at the strengths of those. Um, but I think uh, you know the the research agenda for ADHD has just been sort of um, you know mounting deficit on deficit. 
it's it's like every study will say we discovered ADHD in this number of, of patients. They don't even question the validity of ADHD. If they if they if somebody says, well, how do you know ADHD is even a disorder? Well, this previous study said ADHD was a disorder. We go to those people and we ask them and they'll say, well, it was an earlier study. And eventually you get back to Virginia Douglas who made this comment in 1972. <laughs> wow. And so, you know, th there's a rather specious foundation that mm -hmm. has been built up, an edifice really, uh, a stronghold that's been built up. And of course, if I might add, uh, fueled by the uh, pharmaceutical companies uh, worldwide, um, there's a multi-billion dollar business in treating ADHD uh, through medications like Adderall and Ritalin and so forth. And so there's not a lot of incentive to say that ADHD isn't really a valid disorder. Mm. And also, it gives people an explanation. You know, you'd mentioned the person who says, you know, you do, you're not addressing my struggles. This is what a lot of people need because there are a lot of people who are struggling. This is a very complex society. It's moving along very fast. It's not easy to cope oftentimes and people are struggling. And some people struggle with organization. They struggle with uh, issues like um, being able to even sit still in one place for a long time, you know, the, the, the nine to five desk job. And they've thought for a long time, maybe I'm a loser, you know, or maybe there's something wrong with me. Hmm. And then somebody says you're ADHD and they think, ah, oh, it's like a burden has been lifted from my shoulders. Yep. And that's true. And I, I, I don't want to take away from that. Um, but I wanted to suggest that, you know, ADHD may, may make it better for a lot of people by giving them an explanation for why they are that way. But it, um, it doesn't deal at all with the reasons why they may be that way. And the sort of talk a little response bit? to Medicaid is not necessarily the best for all the people in, in, involved. No, that's great. I like that. And perhaps if you could touch upon a little bit the, you said, you know, if we looked into perhaps the causes or why they are that way, what, what are some of the, the main causes that you've come along because nobody seems to agree yet on what causes ADHD. Um, well, as I mentioned earlier, I didn't really finish the thought. One of the causes is developmental. People with ADHD, many of them, simply develop a little bit later than other people. Every baby is hyperactive, distractible, and impulsive. But over time, the brain matures and they gain control over all their various faculties. It just happens a little later with kids um, who are labeled ADHD. They're late bloomers, essentially. Mm -hmm. Not that we should just leave them alone, you know, oh, they'll bloom on their own. We should provide them with lots of, you know, support structures. And, you know, that's why my book uh, has 101 strategies in it. I don't want to just say ADHD is a myth and then leave everybody to fend for themselves. I want to give them some practical ways of dealing with the various causes of ADHD. And, and if one of them relates to development, then we need to have more of a developmental patience with a lot of kids. And you see, in education, we're pushing the boundaries in the wrong direction, where we should be allowing more developmental flexibility, you know, in first grade, second grade, third grade, 
we do the exact opposite. We make things more developmentally rigid going into kindergarten and into um, preschool. We are expecting preschool kids now to do things that first graders used to do. We have expectations for reading, which is insane. I mean, I came from a child-centered perspective. My training uh, at the University of Massachusetts and at uh, Lesley uh, University um, taught me uh, that you know young children are these holistic beings and they need lots of opportunity to play and to grow and you know lots of space. And we're giving them less and less space and we're putting more and more stress on them. You know, another cause of ADHD is stress. We know from research that kids um, who come from more um, adversity at home uh, are more likely to be labeled as ADHD. So we have another element. They're just showing stress symptoms. Well, if that's the case, what should we do? Well, we should use stress reduction techniques. And there's a whole, you know, world full of stress reduction techniques. In fact, I just wrote a book on mindfulness, which is one of the key strategies that's gained a lot of purchase over the last, um, you know, even just five, 10 years. It's called Mindfulness in the Classroom. And just having kids being able to be present from each moment to each moment can be helpful. You know, I I remember a, a therapist named Violet Oaklander, and she said, I do meditation with hyperactive kids. What I do is, you know, I, I say, what are you seeing right now? And of course, their attention will last two or three seconds and it'll light on something else. And she'll say, now what do you see? And they'll turn to something else and she'll say, now what do you see? It was sort of a running meditation, but gradually over time, their ability to pay attention, to be in the now increased. And that's the kind of you know strategy to use for kids um, who have difficulty paying attention. Um, in in contexts where it's important for them to pay attention. I just wish it wasn't in uh, preschool that we spent, you know, worried about, oh, the kids can't sit still. What's wrong with them? My child can't sit still. Your child is a preschooler, for God's sake. No. Let them play. Play is really, in fact, there's a a neuroscientist um, who passed away, Jack Panksap, who really had a theory about the brain um, that play actually nurtures the frontal lobes of the brain um, in evolution. And that when kids are not given the opportunity to play, they become hyperactive. And he says, you know, and then I, I suggested, could ADHD not be due to the, the demise of play and the rise of technologies? That's another cause. You know, the ADHD people are, are, seem to be blind to the fact that our society has been totally rewired over the last 50 years by the media that we consume. And if you look at how media has changed over the years, you're gonna find that it's become uh, much more fast paced. You know, take a look at the honeymooners back in the the sitcom back in the 1950s, early 50s, and they just stay on a scene for, you know, a long time. They only had one camera. And then I Love Lucy came out with three cameras. So you had shifting from here to here to here. Now they actually have a concept in advertising called jolts per second. (laughs) And it's the number of changes, noises, shifts of camera, flashes and so forth that happen. And they count them in seconds, like 12 jolts per second. 
And we're trying to process that with our brain, with a brain that evolved originally to find, you know, to be able to distinguish who the jaguars and the and the rhinos were, and who uh, and which the you know the nutritious uh, plants were, and we had to make that discrimination very quickly. And so we had a part of our brain, the emotional brain, the fight or flight brain, evolved to do that. Well, our our advertisers um, make use of this type, this brain by putting mm-hmm. on a loud flash, and we pay attention. Uh, uh, you know, um, uh, hopefully they think to their commercial, to their product. Yeah. But the point is, they have fooled us. Our, our brain didn't evolve for bright flashes on TV, or on the internet or in video games. It evolved for tigers and and lions. Mm-hmm. And so you fool the brain. It's like the boy who cried wolf. After a long enough time, we're going to say, ah, don't pay attention to that. And then the media people get worried, so they up the ante. They increase the rate and the intensity of stimulation. Mm-hmm. There's a part of our, uh, there's, there's a chemical in our brain called um, dopamine, which is a neurotransmitter uh, that does, tra- uh, helps messages travel throughout the brain. And it is the uh, neurotransmitter related to stimulation, to reward, to motivation. When the brain gets totally, you know, stim- overstimulated over time, the dopaminergic uh, pathways get exhausted, and in fact, that's seen as one of the problems with ADHD, the problems with the dopaminergic system. So, you know, people will say, "Oh, ADHD is due to the brain; it's not due to culture." Well, the culture affects the brain. And what we often see is the tail end of, you know, the 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 effect that is uh, res- resulting from the fact that kids don't play, that they're taught in boring ways, that they are overstimulated in their media and so forth. So we should address those issues first. Mm. But it's it's very complex. How are you going to how are you going to address those issues? We're looking at a multi-billion-dollar business, the media business. What do we say? Slow things down, you know. What do we say? Uh, you know, your your products are not really that important. It's not really important that people pay attention to them. So just slow things down and make everything educational, and things will be okay. Mm-hmm. We're working. We're working against strong currents here. We're like salmon swimming against the current, uh, trying to get back to our. <laughs> our birthplace. <laughs> wow. And and so, you know, that's why it's so difficult, I think, uh, to get people to change. And and when did you uh first become aware of this, you know, different learning style? When when did you go, wait a minute, we can't just throw all kids into the same classroom and expect the same results? Yeah. Well, I'd say as long as I uh, uh, far back as when I started teaching. And I was a special education teacher, and I immediately saw kids who had gifts and talents of different kinds. Sometimes it was their ability to manipulate me. Sometimes it was their ability to, you know, draw or to be dramatic or to tell stories uh, or in some other way. And so the question arose in my mind, these kids are in a class for learning disabled or educationally handicapped uh, uh, disorders. Why, why then, uh, how do you explain these gifts? And there was always that dichotomy. Well, it turns out as I've slowly began to realize these kids were best 
at things that the schools cared the least about, and they were worst at those things that the schools cared the most about. Mm. So they were people who were at the who happened to show up at the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, given another set of values, given another culture. You know, for example, if you go to the Pulawak culture in the Caroline Islands, they live on several hundred islands. So the ability to navigate from one island to the next has high cultural value. So they teach their kids all kinds of things like memorizing the constellations to use them for reckoning, being able to recognize the little bumps on the horizon, what islands they might represent, being able to tell uh, the difference between dark and light shades of water, so they know if they're coming to, uh, towards a, a coral reef and that kind of thing. Anyway, kids that have the highest level of what I'd call spatial intelligence, which is one of Howard Gardner's multiple intelligences, mm -hmm. would do the best in that kind of a culture. And there are a lot of us who do very well in the world of school, who are well organized, but we can't find our cars in large shopping malls. <laughs> and if we were going growing up in a culture like that, we would be the disabled ones. We would yeah. be the ones in the navigation remediation programs. We would be the ones labeled CDD, Constellation Deficit Disorder. <laughs> you know? So it's just, again, a question of culture and context that determines the extent, the intensity, and even the existence of this disorder in the first place. And what is... Um... I'm going back to something you mentioned earlier, which is parents get so stressed out about their kids need to uh, go to school and learn and put their heads down and focus and get good grades. Yeah. Why? Yeah, what, is, a, what is the carrot on the stick? <laughs> that's a very good question. It's always, it's always, there's a question of passing the buck. It's like, just, just do it now, and it'll help you for next year. It'll get you prepared for next year. Well, you, next year comes, and then why are we do, doing this? Well, to get you ready for the next year. And eventually it becomes, well, to get you ready for junior high, and then to get you ready for high school, then to get you ready for college. Then once you're in college, to get you ready for a good career. And then when you get into a career, to get ready to work your way up the ladder, and then finally, people are up at the la top of the ladder and they're thinking, it, the ones that made it, by the way, that didn't fall by the wayside because right. of stress and other, other factors. And then the people at the top of the ladder are thinking, why did I do all that? And they go through midlife crisis. Um, and you know they begin to question why they put all that effort. It's yeah. much more important to teach kids to be true to themselves, to find out who they are at, in their essence, what they are born to do, what their destiny that they feel inside is, where they, where they want to go with their lives, what fills them with passion. And those should be the things that they follow. Because even if they are a failure in that, they will have all, uh, at least derived satisfaction from engaging in those pursuits. But if you, if you follow a pathway that's not your own intrinsic um, you know, drive, then if you fail, you've struck out in two ways. You failed externally and you failed yourself. Yeah. You know, we really need to teach kids. We do need to teach kids to uh, fit into the outer world. I, I totally agree with that. In my work with neurodiversity, I talk about uh, adaptive success and integral success. Adaptive success is helping kids. And, you know, in my uh, neurodiversity work, 
this is uh, mostly kids with special needs. Um, the adaptive success is to help them learn, you know, to pay attention, to read, to be numerate, to get along with other people, you know, to do the kind of basic things that we consider important in our culture. Um, whereas integral success is the ability to succeed on your own merits according to your own world. And we will respond in different ways as educators and parents to those different definitions of success. For adaptive success, we're going to try to remediate. And that's where the emphasis is in special education. It's on remediation. It's on getting them up to speed, getting trying to get them up to grade level or trying to get them to pass the next test. And, you know, I, I'm agreeing that there's a value to that. But if you only do that, then you're not giving, you're not nurturing the inner self. And so there needs to be, a, you know, a, an approach um, to helping kids find their gifts early in their lives. And I've been attracted particularly to um, Howard Gardner's theory of multiple intelligences, which suggests that there's at least eight intelligences that we possess. Um, there's word smart, being smart with words, being smart with logic and numbers, being smart with pictures and images, being smart with the body, uh, physical uh, abilities, being smart with music, being smart with social interactions, being smart with your emotions and your sense of self and being smart with nature. And people have all kinds of different profiles. They have all of them. Every child has all seven or eight, but they have them in different ways, in different combinations. Some mm -hmm. are strong in one and really bad in all the others. These are the savants of society who you know, can read the, uh, the encyclopedia, but they can't tell you the beginning of what it meant. Mm -hmm. um, whereas other people, you know, are good at several of them. These are the Renaissance people, the Leonardo da Vinci's and the uh, Wolfgang von Goethe's of society. And then most of us are somewhere in between. We, we're good at some things. We're not so good at other things. And this model really helps people understand why my uncle Ernie had such a hard time in school Yet he was a machine genius. He could fix a washing machine when it broke down. He was everybody's auto mechanic in the neighborhood. And, you know, this kind of fact always, you know, struck them, but they didn't think about it in the context of, hey, maybe that ability was as good as the ability to succeed in school, mm. you know, to be school smart. I think schoolhouse smart is almost a separate intelligence in its own right. You know, it's the ability to know how to work the teacher, <laughs> you yeah, know, the, yeah. the ability to um, give the right answer that the teacher wants, the ability to uh, cope with uh, the format of a standardized test, the ability to compete against others for rewards and privileges, etc. And, you know, some kids really, you know, some kids who are not even all that, quote unquote, intelligent in other ways will rise to the head of the class and be A students um, because they have mastered those abilities. Um, there's mm -hmm. a bunch of kids out there now that uh, call themselves robo students. And these are students that get the highest grades, the highest uh, uh, scores on standardized tests, but they say they're doing it just on automatic. They're like robots. They're wow. doing it because that's what's expected of them. Um, and that's again where we're what, what we've been talking about giving away the self to try to yep, fit into yep. everybody else's agenda. 
And that almost seems to me a bit more of a parenting problem than it is an educational problem because the parents are in charge of being able to choose a school. There's many different schools. They're able to, they're able to, they're able to choose delaying a child, right? You don't have to go to college right away, take a year off, or they're able to, they're able to not push them into a career that they think is right for them. Exactly. Uh, And I know people, especially parents with ADHD, the defense is always like, well, it's not bad parenting. And I I remember you said this during one of our interviews. It's like, it's not bad parenting, but we have such fractured lives that parents often just do the easiest thing there is to do, which is just get good grades, get a good job. Or put the child in front of the television in early development, even though you're not supposed to. Uh, And having expectations, putting your child in one of these rapid learning preschools because you think it'll increase their chance of getting into the best colleges. Right. Um, uh, Not giving your child enough time to play. Um, You know, there's just a lot of choices that that parents uh, can make that could make a dramatic difference in their kids' lives. Mm. Most of all, I think it's this idea of parents really helping kids believe in themselves and help them discover themselves, what they're really best at, rather than I want my kid to be a lawyer uh, because I'm a lawyer, uh, or I don't want my kid to be a lawyer because I'm a lawyer. lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever it happens to be. As you said, you know, helping the child find their own way. And there are a lot of great parents who do this all the time. And some of those parents even end up with kids with these labels. That's, you know, because of things that go on in our broader culture that they don't have control over. Right. right. But parents can still insulate um, or not. Uh, what do I want to say? They, they can vaccinate to use a, a <laughs> current term. They <laughs> can vaccinate topic. their kids against some of the, you know, the problems that are going to arise later on. You know, the competition and the stress and that kind of thing. If they provide their child with a balanced and experiential uh, beginning, you know, in life. Lots of time to play is so important. Lots of time to explore all the different intelligences so that they can over time discover what it is that they're best at and what they want to focus more time on. Well, it seems like it would take an amount, a a, a new uh, way of being for the parents. Like it would take a large amount of trust in that the child will turn out, right? It will be it will find his or her way in life and become successful, meaning hopefully uh, mental health as well as financial. But why there seems to be this fear that parents are parenting from a fear of, I don't know, of not being, uh, I guess, scarcity comes to mind, um, failure, uh, disappointment, right? Or they're dying and their kids aren't set up yet to win. There's this fear that that I that I think is so omnipresent. Yeah, exactly. But it can be undone with the simple thing of, you know, believing in your child and believing in your child, not that they're going to all be Einsteins, but believing in your child that they can be the best of who they are. And that's particularly important for ki- uh, parents of kids with special needs. Um, that's why, you know, I really got interested in neurodiversity. Um, neurodiversity is this concept that uh, was developed in the early 90s um, that came out of the autism community. And it was the idea that we want to be considered not disabled, but as different. Mm-hmm. You know? And the mm-hmm. idea of neurodiversity is that we should approach the uh, field of disabilities 
in the same way that we approach diversity of you know, uh, nature, diversity in flowers, diversity in animals, diversity in cultures, we should take that same approach to diversity and apply it to brains, neurodiversity, uh, diversity in brains. Mm -hmm. And so I, I got very excited about this because I thought, you know, I've been a special ed teacher and I've really been trying to find a way of communicating to parents and teachers the idea that their kids are okay the way they are. Not that we aren't going to help them become even better versions of themselves, but we're not going to try to make them into other people. And so, you know, I, I got on this uh, neurodiversity um, kick and wrote a couple of books about it. And there's been increasing interest in it over the years, particularly in higher education and also in the workforce. Um, there was a company in Denmark called Specialistern, the Specialists. And they, uh, their job was to find bugs in software programs. So it involved having to look through endless pages of software code, looking mm. for mistakes. Well, it turns out that they hired a uh, three quarters of their employees are on the autistic spectrum. And the reason for that is that people with autism are better at details than the neurotypical person. They often miss the big picture, but they're detail oriented. They're also systemizers rather than empathizers. They prefer working with systems that have fixed mm -hmm. inputs and outputs. So they like things like computer languages and mathematics, or at a very rudimentary level, the child who wants to do nothing but sit in front of a fan and watch a fan work all day. That's a system as well. So, um, you know, the, the employees at this firm uh, we're doing what they did did best. Their strengths were emphasized. Their strengths were needed in this particular context, and they were so successful in their in their um, work that the model spread to other computer software companies. And now there's a lot of seminars beginning to happen. There was one at Stanford University last month, mm -hmm. uh, looking at the important the emerging role of neurodiversity in the workplace. The one place that neurodiversity, unfortunately, hasn't taken root in is my area of expertise, which is the K-12 uh, school system. And I think that there's a lot of reasons for that. One is the, the standards-based, uh, you know, the common core standards that have, you know, taken a grip on education. And the idea is they're so special education teachers are so worried about their kids, uh, about their students not reaching their standards that yeah. they don't want to focus on the strengths again, even though focusing on the strengths would help them reach the standards. Exactly. So, yeah, so there's, you know, problems with that. But I think that over the long haul, neurodiversity is, is the model of choice for looking at people who are likely to find themselves in special education. And the idea should be that we should help them, we should create niches. I like the word niche or niche around them that works according to how they work best rather than trying to fit them into a square peg somewhere else. You were going to say something. Yeah. I just had this crazy thought that when you were mentioning neurodiversity is that we're such, you know, uh, uh, stewards or uh, proponents of diversity as, as races, right. Or, right ethnicity yet when it comes to neurodiversity we don't see it the same way we right. just we just judge by the color of skin basically yeah right and 
it's kind of actually ridiculous when I think of it that way would make a lot more sense to demand diversity in the yeah. uh, neurodiversity. Sure. Um, you know, we talk about people being racists, but there's also people who are ableists. Ableism is mm. the, in the disability field, the equivalent to racism in uh, racial r- relationships. So um, the whole idea is, you know, the ableist thinks, well, everybody should be able to walk across a room. You know, if you need a wheelchair, there's something wrong with you. Everybody yeah. should be able to relate really well to other people. If you can't do that, there's something wrong with you. Everybody should be able to read, you know, really well, mm. if, if not. So it's, it's, it's approaching the world with your, just like the white person will look at the world in terms of white people and how other uh, races come up short, supposedly. Uh, how, in this case, how everybody is different from me. I'm an able-bodied person, able-bodied person, and other people don't. You know, they come up short. I sometimes begin my workshops with this metaphor of a, a rose uh, as a psychiatrist looking at other uh, plants coming in during the day, and the calla lily comes in mm-hmm. and gets like labeled that. with petal deficit disorder. Yeah. And the, Cactus comes in with antisocial behavior and so <laughs> forth. Each flower is seen as deficient. And yet we know that those flowers are different and that's what adds to their beauty. And we should really take that same uh, approach and that same idea to heart when we are working with kids as parents and as teachers. Is that sort of your suggestion? How what what should happen to the education system, how we overhaul the education system is that the public schools need to start having uh, what I call different departments in the school for teaching different learning styles, to, to, you know, kids with different learning styles or what well, would be I think, it? I think there are a lot of different ways of doing this. And I prefer to use the word multiple intelligences. Um, learning styles is a model that's actually quite old. It goes back to the 50s. And it kind of, one common learning style idea was that there are visual, kinesthetic, and right. auditory learners. And the multiple intelligences is different from that in that it's not based on the senses. You can be blind and be highly spatial. You can be deaf and highly musical. But it incorporates the same kind of approach, even as it provides more options. And I think it's much mm-hmm. more uh well-developed and more thoroughly grounded than the traditional learning style approach. Hmm. Um, and also, you know, to get back to your, your comment, I think that we can work with the multiple intelligences in different ways. And one way is by having different rooms that, you know, focus on the different intelligences. And the other is by having a teacher that over time will teach kids history, math, science, whatever it happens to be, through different modalities, through different intelligences. So that instead of just hitting the books and doing the paper and pencil thing, they can be doing hands-on experiments or demonstrations or role plays where they can be, you know, to memorize uh, scientific ideas, uh, use uh, musical mnemonics and uh, that kind of thing. I, I, in my workshops, I would have, I would teach my uh, teacher um, participants, I would teach them Boyle's Law. Um, and I would have them all get in the center of the room and we'd put a circle around it and then everybody would be molecules of gas in the chamber and they'd start to move around and we'd slowly 
um, make the volume go down. And as the volume went down, they get more and more crowded. Well, the pressure goes up and that's what boiled sauce says. As the volume goes down, the pressure goes up. As the volume goes up, the pressure goes down. But we were teaching it experientially, not, not just through logic, but we were teaching it through the body. We were teaching mm -hmm. it through uh, social interaction. We were teaching it through spatial relations. Mm. And people always love that strategy because it really, um, you know, I would start out by teaching them traditional ways and nobody would understand the law <laughs> except the ones that already knew it. And then we come to this one and boom, everybody understands. And those are the things that often are not present in school, but could easily be. We just trained our teachers. Mm. And so, so that's the school system, right? So we got to make that more interesting, more uh, catered to this diversity, uh, the way kids learn or observe information. Right. That's, that's in the school system, right? But right. then at home, I feel like there is a lot that parents aren't willing to, uh, to look at or what I call flip it upside down and question it. And that can be as simple as food, nutrition, that could be, uh, a divorce or drama that's going on in the household and all these other things. And I wonder why, why are parents so resistant to look at all these other aspects? Well, I think parents are human beings and, you know, they have their own uh, mixture of strengths and challenges. I think one of the things that's really helpful to do with parents is to lead them back to their own childhoods, their memories of their childhood. Um, their early childhood, did they play a lot? Um, were mm -hmm. they allowed to go outside and engage in lots of, you know, uh, rough and ready, uh, rough and tumble play kind of thing? Uh, what were their school experiences like? Were they stern or were they more flexible? And once you get parents in touch with their memories, they begin to start to, that does kind of flip things upside down for them. And they start to think, well, you know, I always loved it when we had music class and we all got up and danced to music. And so they begin to think, well, maybe I want my kid to have that too, because I really liked it. Um, and so they begin to rethink things. And so, you know, that's why I've had little questionnaires in some of my books, which ask parents to think back to their own childhood about their own multiple intelligences and which ones were stymied. Some, you know, some of us had paralyzing experiences for certain of the intelligences. Mm -hmm. um, I remember uh, drawing on the, up on the bottom side of my coffee table when I was a, a child. And I just, I was like uh, Michelangelo with a Sistine Chapel, you know, <laughs> on my back. And uh, one day my father found out and he gave me a spanking. And um, I thought, well, that, you know, later on, I thought, well, you know, I've always felt I was an artist, but I've never been able to kind of put it into action. And I wonder if this paralyzing mm. experience has something to do with it, you know? And yeah. I think if we help uh, parents get in touch with their early uh, paralyzing experiences and also what Gardner calls crystallizing experiences, which are positive experiences that opened up a window to a new intelligence. Mm. You know, somebody, um, Einstein, uh, his father gave him a magnetic compass when he was almost five. And he said that the magnetic compass, the way the, the, the arrow would always point toward the north, filled him with a, a, a desire to ferret out the mysteries of the universe. That really was his crystallizing experience that started him on his route to 
literally uncovering the mysteries of the universe. Wow. So, but, and it was a simple thing. It was just a simple toy. Um, and that's another thing I think parents need to realize. They don't need to do anything really complex or out of the ordinary. Mm -hmm. Simple things are what really awaken the genius in kids. Walks with your parents, um, a, you know, a trip to the zoo, um, getting together as a family and singing songs or playing a board game or, you know, doing a, a science experiment together um, in a fun family way, not in this sort of serious, you know, it's either wrong or right, you know, kind of way. Mm -hmm. it's just, uh, I think that's another thing that parents sometimes have a problem with, and that is a certain degree of perfectionism, where they expect their kids to get everything all right. And if they didn't, then that's a problem. We need right. to let go of perfectionism. We need to, you know, encourage messes early on and even later on. Mm -hmm. uh, it, you know, kids should be engaged, particularly when they start to get into junior high and high school. They should be engaged in more individualized projects, projects that they themselves have had a role in in, in deciding about. Um, I just uh, recently wrote a book um, uh, called The Power of the Adolescent Brain. And in that book, I, I talked about the recent uh, 20 years uh, of brain research um, that has shown that uh, the adolescent brain is almost going through as many changes as the young child's brain. But most of it's happening in the frontal lobes, which is where the planning and inhibition and organization and um, goal setting and all those things are, all the things that adolescents have difficulty with. Yep. And they need most help with. And one of the best things we can do is help them with their uh, goal setting, for example, by giving them an individualized project or not by giving them. See, I already made the mistake of saying supporting giving them and you give it to them. They're not going to want it. <laughs> exactly. But yep. if, you know, you help them explore, the teacher helps them explore. What are some things that you'd like to, you know, investigate mm -hmm. um, that have to do with science or that have to do with history? And then supporting that process in whatever way that the uh, student or the child wants, that can be very, very uh, productive. That's great. Um, talk to me about emotional intelligence. Um, I, we have this theory, my wife and I, as we've moved through this, you know, five years of research is that if we medicate our children at a young age and we, we stifle their their uh, impulsiveness. I believe impulsiveness is a way to calibrate your intuition. It's a way to fail and succeed and try it out, you know? And right. so if we, if we essentially sedate them or, or stifle that impulsivity, are we also uh, essentially uh, um, uh, holding them back from becoming emotionally intelligent in charge of their emotions or experiencing the full spectrum? Has that something to do with that? That's a, that's a good question. Um, the idea of impulsivity um, being a way of recalibrating one's intuition is a very novel concept and one that I haven't really thought of before. Mm. But I think that um, the um, child that uh, can own their own emotions, I mean, emotional intelligence is really all about, first of all, being able to name your emotions. If you're angry, being able to know you're angry. Some people get angry. They don't know they're angry. Hmm. There's even a term dyslexithymia for people that can't put a name on their emotions. Really? Yeah. And uh, so, um, you know, the, being able to name your emotions, being able to regulate your emotions. And you can't regulate your emotions unless you have emotions. 
In other words, you need to be able to express them um, and be able to work with them. It's like you need some raw material to work with. And if your emotions are being subdued through medica medications, you don't have anything to work with. You know, you're being sort of forced to be emotionally intelligent, which is really not being emotionally intelligent at all. So I, I, I agree with you. I think that um, one of the problems with medication, and I'm not against medications, by the way. Right, right. Same I, here. The irony was I was working on my first version of the myth of the ADD child, and I went to Europe and uh, stopped sleeping for five days. And for five days, I did a five-day workshop on one hour of sleep. Wow. And I came, I came back and I said, I got to do something about this. And so that's when I began taking, I have unipolar depression. So I began taking medications, uh, antidepressants, just at the point that I was talking about the evils of medication. Mm. And I realized, you know, medications can help people. <laughs> yeah. They help me yeah. and they do help kids. Uh, and, you know, parents shouldn't feel guilty about that. They should feel guilty if that's all they're giving their kids and they're not providing other non-drug alternatives mm. if they're trying to make the medication carry the whole load of what's not in balance in the home in the school in the child right um and fortunately um medication levels can be uh low enough that they don't in hopefully intrinsically affect emotional expression so that there's still room for the child to work with their emotions and learn how to self-regulate them yeah that's uh sorry yeah. No, go ahead. Uh, one thing I hear a lot from these ADHD support groups is that a lot of kids on medication get very angry, but it seems like, and then it becomes an ODD and right, they lay another disorder on yes. top of the ADHD, yes. but it yeah. seems like it's a one note kind of like just anger. Yeah. Uh, right. Sometimes they're happy, but it's, it's either happy or they're sad or angry. That's it. That's all yeah, I ever not, hear. That's not good. That's not good. Yeah. Um, because our emotions exist in a, I mean, we talk about this, the seven colors of the spectrum. There are thousands of colors to the emotional spectrum yeah. um, and that kids really do. They're born knowing those emotions and then gradually they learn which emotions they're not supposed to have and which emotions they're supposed to have. And then medications come along on top of that. and uh, cripple the emotional expression and then anger comes in and then a new label comes in OCD um, or not OCD uh, opposite ODD. ODD rather yep, yep. or a conduct disorder and so it's like the side effects then become part of the uh, part of the diagnosis that's that's another thing that bothers me about ADD is that it seems to be kind of a black hole in terms of swooping in whatever you throw at it I remember one physician mom writing to me and saying, you know, um, they say that uh, my child who's ADHD can't concentrate, but my kids can spend hours working on his Lego structures, hours. And then she said, well, somebody then came along and told me, well, that's part of the, the syndrome that's called hyperfocus. And I thought, oh, Lord, what's going on here when you start taking you know, beware if your child spends too much time focusing on things that interest them. That can be a symptom of ADHD. I thought, you know, how cheap can you get trying to work everything in? You know, if you try to say, well, it's not ADHD, it's depression. 
then they'll say, oh, no, it's ADHD and depression. Those are comorbid <laughs> disorders. Yeah. I love that term, comorbidity, you know, is how you can have ADHD and you can have learning disabilities and you can have depression. You can have your cake and eat it too, basically, yeah. Yeah. is what it is. So it becomes almost impossible to uh, tease apart, you know, when does depression stop and ADHD starts? You know, where's the boundary line? Or is it really depression that's feeding the attention? Because if you're depressed, you have a hard time concentrating. Um, and you may have a hard time sitting still. Um, yeah. I remember one antidepressant I took had the side effect of making me pace all the time. And if somebody had come in and looked at me, they might have said, well, you know, clearly you have ADHD because you can't sit still. Wow. So, but, you know. Um, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. And look, we could go on forever, but, um, and really we could, because I, I think you have such a wealth of knowledge and I'm, I'm so fascinated by this topic and it's like every day, you know, a new thing comes out, a new book, a new angle, but I, it always come back to me. It always comes back to like, you know, we're treating or we're labeling these symptoms and we're not really looking at what what's happening in the environment of the child. Right. Exactly. Environment is a big, 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 big thing that I claim on, I cling on to because I think it has the most effect on us humans. Wouldn't you say? I would say, I mean, there's a lot of debate about nature versus nurture and right. certainly part of what we are is due to genetics. But I think the larger part is what, how those uh, genes interact with the environment. I mean, now we know the gene expression can be, changed according to the kinds of experiences kids have so even if it's genetic it's environmental exactly uh, in, in many cases so i think you're very right in 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 making this kind of ties a lot of the things i've been saying together um looking at the environment looking at nature versus not nature play versus not play mm -hmm. what kind of school experiences school environments do we create what kinds of uh uh, technological environments do we create? Because not all technology is bad. There's some technology that would be perfect for kids with the label ADHD because they like stimulation and a, yep. a, a cleverly designed computer program that teaches them to read, for example, can have lots of explosions and, and that kind of thing. <laughs> exactly. Um, like my son likes that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's a, a lot to be had from the environment and there's a lot to be wary of in the environment. Yeah. And it, it may be that one of our best uh, teaching or parenting skills is our ability to determine um, looking out at the environment, which are the harmful aspects and which are the powerful aspects and then how to be able to subdue the harmful aspects uh, such as limiting tv violent programming with your child right and um the how to evoke and bring more of the enhancing uh, experiences into the um, child's life well i appreciate you taking the time to come on our podcast and and you know i just want you to know that many things you've said in, in the, in our previous interview and just now make a big difference and have made a big difference in our lives that we, you know, I daily apply to my parenting or at least my being aware of it. So I really, I really appreciate all of uh, what you've done for not just my family, but obviously thousands uh, of families out there with your books, with your teachings. And so I really appreciate you uh, 
giving your time to, to speak with me about it. Thank you, Roman. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. Great. Until next time, we'll do a follow-up soon. Excellent.